0: Welcome to episode 439 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, first time on the uh, roundup, Justin Sherman, fellow at the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative and also a senior fellow at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. Gus Hurwitz, who hasn't been on in a while, and we're glad to have him back, who's a professor of law and the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Gus, that's the last time I'm going to read that whole damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try and
1: add another one for the next time. <laughs>
0: Please do. And of course, Nick Weaver, whose title I've been cutting short for years now, is at the International Computer Sciences Institute in Berkeley and the Chief Man Scientist at Scary Technologies. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We've got a lot of, pro- of stories to cover. We're going to try to do them fast. No one of them is big enough to absorb the program, so we're just going to try to bang through a bunch of these because they're all pretty significant. So, Nick, ransomware revenue fell, according to the study from Chainalysis, by $300 million in 2022. Is
2: that good news? Yes, But we don't know why. So whether or not I trust chainalysis absolute numbers, I do trust their relative numbers. And so people are paying less. It could be because insurers are refusing to pay out. Because if I was an insurance company, I wouldn't want to be paying out. Um, Well, and
0: they're certainly enforcing the rule that you don't pay people that you think are on the OFAC sanctioned parties list. So. The insurers are policing that in ways that maybe individual companies wouldn't.
2: Right. Also, the insurers do tend to use facilitators, and I think the facilitators are getting better at that. Another issue is just people are realizing that paying the ransom doesn't necessarily get your systems up and running all that much faster.
0: And it doesn't prevent your data from being leaked. Just It just takes a while for it to leak.
2: Yeah, And so we don't know why, but it's also useful to know the scale that even Chainalysis, which is conservative in their estimations of cybercrime, believes that this is a billion dollar a year plus industry. Yeah,
0: I'll just pick up a story that I was going to cover as a a quick one, which is the story in which John DiMaggio wrote for Analyst One, a long report about actually infiltrating the lockbit gang, ransomware gang, and seeing all of the internal angst and struggle, and it, it's a it's a long story listen worth listening to, but I saw something in there that I hadn't seen in any other story. Apparently Lockbit went after Entrust, which is a big Canadian security company, and as soon as it threatened to expose and uh, Entrust's of files. It was subjected to a multi-day DDoS attack, which just shut LockBit down. And of course, they're uh, in the business of getting money today, right. right now, from people who are afraid. So DDoS actually hurt them, and and Trust never paid. I thought that was interesting, given my inclinations. Is Dimaggio said it was in Trust that the DDoS uh, LockBit. If so, this would be a great example of hacking back. I kind of wonder whether it might have been the Canadian cybersecurity arm of the military that might have done that. We're certainly seeing the the Aussies getting interested in doing that. So there may be some other attacks. I also would love to hear if it turns out that uh, Entrust actually went out and went after Lockbit uh, hammer and tongs with a DDoS attack. Okay, what happened with the FAA outage, right? We all heard about it. Planes were locked to the ground for at least... I think, 12 hours. Turns out it was a computer problem. So
1: do you want my conspiracy theory hat on or my responsible lawyer hat on, Stuart?
0: I'll go for <laughs> so, the conspiracy. <laughs> uh,
1: the official line is that we're throwing the contractors under the bus. So this is the FAA's notice to air mission system, which is a decrepit 1980s era system that provides information about potential hazards and flight situations to pilots. Before every flight, they get this printout of all uppercase anachronistic abbreviations and everything, and the system went down. It was unclear exactly why. The backup system also went down, and the official word is that contractors deleted the database files during some routine maintenance or something and they transferred it between the two systems and that's why the entire thing went down now the conspiracy theory version of this and i've got no idea which of these is truth if there's truth between them so what has been been told is there was some corruption in these files the databases were corrupted that was the original story and then we're told that contractors deleted the files, and they were propagated to the backup system, and that's what, what caused it. Now, the question is, why were the files deleted? Were they corrupted first, and the contractors were trying to address the corruption, or was this all just one incident and the contractors screwed up? making this a little more spooky. I'm doing the whole conspiracy theory thing here. Apparently, the Canadian NOTAM system, on the same day, also had a shorter outage. Their backup systems rolled over, and they didn't have the, the ground stop or anything. But what actually happened here? Was it some simple accident? Maybe. Probably. That's my my probably. Was it some nefarious conduct and attack? Maybe. Probably not was there some corrupt entry this is a decrepit 80s era system that uses lots of abbreviations maybe there was the equivalent of a buffer overflow with a missing space or something uh, that was propagated between the systems who knows the big picture is this is just one of dozens hundreds of really old legacy systems that are too important to take down and upgrade that we rely on every day. So we're just living in a growing bubble of technical debt.
2: Just to give you a scale, I heard something about it being on Spark Solaris, and I think <laughs> well, that's I have... The, that's, that, that's the 1990s for sure. <laughs> I think I'd have students who are older than the NOTAM hardware. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and and I, I want to point out that NOTAM, actually... The 1980s is being kind of it. No town stood for Notice to Airmen, which I thought was kind of this sweetly completely anachronistic throwback to the days before there were even pilots, right? These they were they were airmen. And it survived the Obama administration, but it did not survive Pete Buttigieg. Uh, <laughs> well, it's who, even uh, older than that. that Isn't that, it
2: all wasn't it originally Notice to All Mariners? Oh, really? because it's adopted from the sea system?
1: Uh, I thought it was noticed air mission. And the answer, I bet, is it's all of these and just has evolved over time.
2: Yeah, they Pete... keep back it to keep exactly. it as no time. That, that, that sounds exactly
0: right. And I, I gather it, it was Pete who managed to take the men out of it and put the missions in. Makes even less sense. So he may not have solved the uh, the problem of the system being fragile, but... By God, he has solved the inherent uh, Petro uh, uh, centrality of, of the system. So God bless him. We can we can be glad he's on the job. All right, Genesis or parts of Genesis have filed for Chapter Eleven. This is another big crypto lender who lent to two of the biggest failures of the last six months. And I guess that's the lesson: is that that we're seeing this long tail of knock on collapses, Nick. Is there any more lesson to yes. this than that this is a a surprisingly insular industry where everybody's lending to each other and when one goes down, the rest of them are in trouble?
2: Yes. So there is the fact that the industry is basically entirely kiting checks to each other that are only valid until anybody actually tries to cash one. But this is a bit more. So DCG is one of the big players. Barry Silbert, they own Grayscale Trust, and a bunch of others. Genesis is a wholly owned subsidiary. Back when Three Arrows Capital failed because they were investing it all in Ponzi schemes, Genesis had a multi-billion dollar hole blown in their wallet. So they accepted a loan or a uh, agreement from their parent that their parent company, DCG, would now owe them a billion dollars so they're still solvent. Right but it gets worse. So you see Genesis used to do just borrow from accredited investors. You you play your game, you take your chances. But they had this great idea to get together with Gemini to offer Gemini Earn accounts which were so blatant unregistered securities. And so as a consequence, roughly a billion dollars of the money tied up in Genesis came from Retail investors buying unsecured, unregistered securities from the Winklevoy twins.
0: Uh, Yeah, okay. Um,
2: The SEC finally, only after it's imploded, has decided to sue them both for this, and it gets better. This prepackaged bankruptcy is really a fraud, that in a general bankruptcy, that billion dollars from Digital Currency Group becomes callable, and DCG has to pony up a billion dollars that they don't have. But if the creditors accept this prepackaged bankruptcy, they instead get the DCG note parceled out amongst them, which is a 1% interest rate payable in 10 years, and also forego having any rights to sue DCG, Genesis, Gemini, or any of the employees, of which the Winklevoi are actually on the hook personally in a couple of the class action lawsuits over said unregistered securities. So what we are seeing here really is a billion-dollar theft made legal thanks to the bankruptcy system. Well, okay.
0: And it also suggests to me that we could see further knock-on effects from all this because all the litigation could upset some of this stuff, and that that will pass on more instability to other parties. And
2: truthfully, the way to think of the cryptocurrency space is everybody is in only solvent as long as their checks are never cashed. <laughs> and the proper regulator for the space is the Department of Justice. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: All right, Justin, this was a really interesting study. It was covered by uh, Recorded Future, but it, it was done by some academics who looked at whether there was Russian interference worth mentioning in the 2016 election. And, you know, I've always thought that, that all the talk about those ads and the divisions and the po- pretending to be 10 GOP and the like, that that was all just bogus. There was no real impact. The only impact, the only from the interference was in the hack and leak operation against the DNC. And this study really comes down hard on that side of it, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, as you as you hinted at, I think we've gone through,
3: at this point, several iterations of this almost binary sort of question about the Russian influence operations in 2016 and again in 2018 and again in 2020 and so on of sort of, Did it cause many people to go to the polls and completely change what they were doing, or did it not? You know, this study definitely comes down in the second category in the sense of saying at least what they looked at, they could not identify that folks who were exposed to Russian, you know, information operations content actually changed their political activities around the election. But I I still think there's sort of an overstating here in general of social media's influence. You know, Gavin Wilde and I did a paper on this recently. If you look at, you know, decades of Russian information warfare thinking, one thing threaded throughout these documents and these strategies is this belief that you can systemically manipulate people's thoughts and actions like they're some sort of automaton, And that there's this you know, preordained or natural, or in their case, Marxist-Leninist formula for manipulating thoughts and figuring out how to get people to do particular things. And, you know, certainly there are lots of harms associated with targeted ads and and all that stuff. But at the same time, we risk, by leading into that, overstating what can actually be accomplished. So,
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Because one of the things that I think that I always apply as a rule in trying to understand some of these authoritarian governments is that they are driven almost entirely in their view of the outside world by their by what works at home and what they care about at home. And, you know, if you're a totalitarian government with complete control of every aspect of media, maybe you can shape public opinion in a way that rewards this very aggressive lying and disinformation. And it leads you to believe, well, oh, it works. It works every week uh, that profit comes out. And so they're selling... A domestic technology to their bosses as a foreign relations technology. And it's not as clear that it works as well in a marketplace of ideas. So that's a, I, I, that's a very interesting insight. And it would make sense that it would be easy for us to buy into that, partly because we pay attention to what the Russians say to themselves. And because we've been saying that at least since the 50s when Vance Packard wrote uh, "The Hidden Persuaders." How uh, advertising this is, is the- shaping everything you think of, and you know we, we've gotten cynical about that. But now the new technology comes along, and we we believe that this time they have a a true mind ray to force us all to believe something that isn't so. So, I all all that is interesting. I think it's also interesting that, frankly, this whole Russia thing was driven by not. Uh, well, a, a, a cynical but not surprising approach by the Clinton campaign to say, "Oh, what about? Don't let's stop talking about my emails and talk about what Russia is doing for Trump." And that turned into like five years of Russia, 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 as Trump would say. And I, you know, frankly, I, I'm not carrying a lot of water for him, but he was right about that. They, the the whole Russia thing is turning out to be a scam and a distraction. And something that did immense damage to our uh, polity. And uh, as Matt Taibbi said, maybe it's time for a truth and reconciliation commission to look at, you know, what was true there and what wasn't, and maybe we should get an apology for some of the people that that pushed that on us. So that's that's my political spot for the episode. Let's go to Twitter because I know Nick loves talking about it. Nick, it really looks as though for all the fuss about. Twitter and how it's been wrecked by Musk and all the bad things that are happening. You know, Mastodon's clearly not going to take over from from Twitter that we can now see that already. Being unable to pay the interest that he owes on those big loans he took out took out is going to create a crisis quite different from the one he's had up to now. And it looks as though that could happen as as early as next week.
2: Yes. So For those of you who haven't been following the saga of Pony Stark and his $44 billion fiasco, he did one thing right in this. He did not personally guarantee some $12 billion worth of loans that was used as part of the buyout. Instead, that's debt for new Twitter. Now, the problem is, is that means Twitter now has vastly more interest payments than they did before. So much so that it was already going to be a question of whether they could make such payments, made far, far worse by Pony Stark's habit of driving away advertisers. So basically, the amount of money we are talking about is about the same amount of revenue that he's driven away by pissing off all the advertisers.
0: Yeah, this is all so, going to come, come to a, a hand when he has to pay it and i i just don't see how he pays it he he's got to either get relief or package up a bankruptcy we're going to we're going to see some real business crisis activity in the next couple and of weeks
2: and the problem that musk is facing is none of them are good alternatives raising more money means he has to sell more tesla stock uh-huh. and that runs the risk of putting it into a death spiral where he gets wiped out trying to negotiate with the bankers won't work because what the bankers will demand is, okay, you're going to be on the hook personally for the loans as well. We'll give you a cut on the interest rate because there's enough competition for other things that, help you make them suffer. Or it's a Chapter 11, in which case in Chapter 11, Basically, the banks own it lock, stock, and barrel because the value of Twitter as an ongoing concern is now pretty much less than the loans thanks to all the damage Musk has done to the business. And as the cherry on the top, Musk always has to keep an eye on one thing. If Tesla's stock falls too much, he ends up sharing Trevor Milton's fate because the difference between what Trevor Milton did with his downhill truck and what Elon Musk has done with Autopilot is indistinguishable to a jury. And so, fortunately for Musk, the DOJ would only ever crack down on fake it till you make it till it fails. And so, as long as Tesla stays at a reasonably insane overvalue... He's okay, But if Tesla price ever falls to, say, the P.E. ratio of Toyota or worse, the P.E. ratio of GM or worse, the P.E. ratio of Hertz, which is where Tesla is now apparently selling a lot of their cars. He is looking to be fully bankrupt and wearing handcuffs. And that's that's in the back of his mind in these decisions, I think. All
0: right. Well, I'm not sure about all of that, but I I do think we're going to learn a lot about what he really thinks is important here. And it's not going to be, you know, not going to be something he tweets. So so Nick, Uh,
1: I've got a question. Do you have any prognostications for who acquires SpaceX when that all happens?
2: SpaceX is interesting because the problem is, is they're really cool. They do really good work, but they aren't making any money because all the money they make is being shoved into that stupid Starlink system which is really cool until you go, hey, physics says this will never be a profitable business.
0: Well, if you can get get launches down to a buck and a half, maybe it is. Okay, let's talk law. There's a couple of legal cases that are actually going to change a lot about the Silicon Valley overarching set of legal obligations. The one that's getting a lot of press is Gonzalez versus Google, which is an effort to tag... Google and YouTube with liability for essentially making contributions to the success of ISIS as a terrorist organization by recommending terrorist videos. And it's a suit brought by uh, the relatives of a French woman who was killed by ISIS. And Gus, it looks as though, even though a lot of the material assistance to terrorism is Part of this lawsuit, Google is fighting this, and it's gotten massive amounts of Amicus attention on the ground that it's a public, it's being sued as a publisher, and Section Two Hundred and Thirty makes it immune.
1: Yep, so that, that's exactly right. This case is the Section Two Hundred and Thirty case. Whether Section Two Hundred and Thirty, which has never really gone up to the Supreme Court, malware bites, there have been a couple of cases, but. This goes to the core of Section 230 immunity, and as you noted, tons of amicus support, amicus briefs were due this last Friday, and there were about 50 that were filed, almost all in support of Google or in support of Section 230 is probably the, the right way to say that, and disclosure, I signed on to one of those briefs with other uh, law professors. I, I've got no idea how this case is going to come out. It's going to be heard February 21st, and then February 22nd, it's com- companion pace, the Tomna case against Twitter. Same basic issue will be heard.
0: Although I get the impression that the Twitter case is t- focusing less on 230 and more on what it means to provide assistance to terrorist organizations.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right, both as a matter of the question presented, but also in terms of the the briefing and the amicus support that the energy has flowed into gonzalez for this issue
0: so i don't think this is a terrific case for fans of 230s immunity because at the end of the day this is about the recommendation algorithm that google runs which basically says you know yeah well, here's another video and here's another and here's another and here's another and you have to work pretty hard to say I recommended these videos to people, I thrust them on them, but I'm being sued as a publisher for doing that. Aren't you really being sued for having pushed a bunch of terrorist videos on your customers? seems to me that it's not inherently appealing as a matter of construction of the statute to say I'm being held liable as a publisher when you're really being held liable for what you recommend. So
1: There are two adages that we law professors like. One is hard cases make bad law. The other is easy cases make bad law. And this might be a case where the hard case makes the best law because it's the the framing in one of the extremes of what the real question is. And the, the question is, are these algorithmic recommendation equivalent to traditional editorial discretion or are they different? And One of the key amicus briefs that was filed is Google's arch nemesis Yelp, which stepped in and defended Google here saying, look, we use AI automated decision making to evaluate the reviews that we are at the core of our business model. And if Google loses this case, we're not going to be able to use AI to make these recommendation issue it, make recommendation that we use. That's the core of our business model, and it very much is the equivalent of having the human editors deciding what content is and isn't being promoted on the front page.
0: Now, the the real fight. Well, but 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 but, but the, what's it, deciding what goes on the front page is a matter of, of uh, allocating scarcity. This is about jamming stuff down people's throats at scale. It's really not the same thing at all. And the, the Congress that passed this in the 90s was not worrying about ensuring that AI could be used by Silicon Valley. So that's all just BS. These guys are saying... Oh, I'm so weak. I'm going to die here unless you give me a guaranteed immunity from every possible liability under the sun so that I can continue to make 40% profit on what I do. I, I'm sorry. I you know I just don't feel sorry. So for that,
1: that's the, the rubber meets road question. So we've got two questions really going on here. The first is, are these algorithmic decision recommendation engines the modern day equivalent to editorial discretion? If not, where do you draw that line? And that line drawing issue is going to be the first really hard issue that the court deals with. Then you've got the rubber meets road question of if the industry does lose Section Two Thirty protection, what does that future look like? And if you listen to folks in the industry, it's the end of the industry. the The sky is falling. If you listen to Stuart Baker, no, give me a break. Viability is nice. everywhere. <laughs> you all will figure out how to deal with this. The reality is probably somewhere in between. And a lot is going to come down to the justice's prudential understanding of what will that future look like and also their respective views or their reviews on the respective role of the courts and Congress in sorting
0: that out. Importantly, this that seems to me, don't you think that's that's a big part of this? The, the, one of the best answers to this is to say, you know, um, you're being asked to stretch this as though it were, you know, in the Constitution and you had to adapt it because there's no way to fix the law except by construction. But this is just a statute. Well, if there's a problem, it can be fixed. It's clearly there are ambiguities and doubts about the intent here, and nobody, I, I think it's fair to say actually intended the results that are being put forward by Google and its friends. So if you have any doubt, court, send it to Congress. And sure, they have problems, but they are capable of passing legislation as they do every year. And if you're a conservative, you say, and won't it be more fun to see what what Congress does with this now that the GOP has this tiny little advantage in the House? Let's force the tech companies to go in and actually... You know, deal with the republicans on the now, house now, side Stuart,
1: the only legislation that the house that the congress passes every year is the ndaa and do you want this resolved in the ndaa putting
2: putting that no, joke I, uh, but I, I
0: like the idea of saying this is this is must pass yep. legislation and it's more fun to have this struggle than the struggle over uh, debt limit which uh, you know we are getting it wrong actually could have some pretty serious consequences. Yeah, so there, there's an important the bit to add there. More lawsuits for Silicon Valley. Th-
1: there's an important bit to add to that. Just this morning, the court asked for the government's views on the uh, net choice uh, litigation. So this is the Texas and Florida social media laws um, that the 11th Circuit and 5th Circuit resolved differently. And there are right. certain petitions before the court.
0: And there's been a lot of they're going to take those cases. Oh. Aren't they, to my mind, asking for the SG's views is just a dodge to ensure that this will come up in time, fully briefed for adding to the docket next Right. Year.
1: So that, that's exactly the question, though. They could have granted them today to be heard this term. So that it feels as though they're tapping the brakes on this issue. And the, the question For Gonzalez and possibly all of these cases is whether the court wants to say this is a statutory interpretation issue. We're going to, over the last 20, 25 years, there has come to be a dominant understanding of Section 230. We're not going to mess with that. And Congress, you can fix it if you want or they're going to say, hey, we think there's a problem with this. We're going to blow up the system and force Congress to be more likely to address it. And the, the court could go either way, depending on how they're feeling about Section 230's underlying legitimacy and the political
0: balance. Yeah, this is a Kavanaugh-Roberts issue, I suspect, how they feel about it, because there, there are going to be people who just say, "You know, I, I know Silicon Valley hates me, and I'm Going to return the favor, and then there are going to be people who say, "Oh, well, all my peeps are already telling me what to do here. I'm going to vote for 230." And it's Kavanaugh and and Roberts who are probably in the middle. On you this. want to
1: uh, talk about some some more Section 230, Stuart, or uh, just go straight to prostitution, or are they the same thing?
0: I, <laughs> yes, let's 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 go to prostitution. I think we've 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 worked that one over because this is another case where I think that courts are potentially going to reshape the law that people think governs. You know, Everybody remembers FOSTA-SESTA. It's, uh, again, in polite society, we're all supposed to, to hate FOSTA-SESTA. This was the law that said uh, we're going to create a, an exception to Section 230 for uh, people who are promoting prostitution. And essentially, it was an attack on back pages, uh, which had gotten Section 230 immunity. And now a bunch of lefty se- society litigators... Are saying, well, this is unconstitutional just to say you can't promote prostitution because there's a whole bunch of political arguments that you might want to make in a publication or online that promote prostitution legalization as well as promoting prostitution. At least that's how I'm reading the the argument. And they, because I don't know about you, I thought they had two Democratic appointee votes or from the on the DC circuit, and so unless this goes unbanked, bank, it's pretty likely that at least part of FOSTA-SESTA is going to be held on Constitution. Yeah, so
1: I I think that that's right. Judges uh, Mellott and Edwards both seemed pretty sympathetic to the idea, and this is a constitutional issue, unlike the other Section 230 cases, that a law that says we are going to treat speech differently if it is about promoting prostitution. Well, you have a a group that is advocating for the legalization of prostitution, that is promoting prostitution, but it's also core political speech, they're petitioning the government, and two of the three judges seem sympathetic that that is problematic, and all three judges seem sympathetic to the idea that the constitutional issue could be severed in this statute that the statute could be viewed as treating the promotion of prostitution as different from the facilitation of prostitution. So the facilitation prong might survive. And the the absurdity is probably too strong a word, and I'll get angry emails with it. Facilitating prostitution is illegal. Criminal prosecutions are possible. In fact, the faults behind Backpage are being prosecuted. It's on hold due to the pandemic, but this is criminal activity. So Section 230 arguably isn't a bar to these federal prosecutions anyhow. But yeah, there's a core First Amendment speech issue that's being raised here.
0: But you're pointing out that this may turn out to be a more symbolic than a practical impact on the statute. Nick?
2: That's the other thing is that the FOSTA-SESTA was passed to go after Backpage, but Backpage's prosecution started and basically does not depend on FOSTA-SESTA at all. Some of the participants already pled out. I'm not sure what the status is on the rest. All right,
0: let's see if we can move along, because we still have a bunch of cases that that we want to cover. I'm going to skip the EU AI Act, except to say they've passed the act, and now they're calling on standards organizations to figure out what the hell they did. And the standards organizations, I predict, are not going to know. So we've got a long tail of uncertainty about what kind of AI regulation the EU is actually engaged in. Justin, you wrote a piece that was, I think, appeared last week on cybersecurity under the sea, and basically a long discussion about regulation for national security purposes of submarine cables by what is fondly known and and inaccurately known as Team Telecom. It actually has some completely worthless acronym instead. Do you want to give us the elevator pitch for what you said in this uh, Lawfare article?
3: Sure. Yeah. And good luck to anyone trying with the new Team Telecom acronym. It's like 12 (laughs) letters long. Yeah. I mean, the paper essentially says, look, we most of us, right, we engage with the internet. It's a wireless experience, but we forget that you know, hundreds of these submarine cables carry 95 plus percent of all internet traffic between continents. So sort are saying this is a key part of the internet infrastructure. And so as a result, we need to think about its security and resiliency. So uh, I'll say up front, there are a lot of articles and other things recently with the Russia-Ukraine war and with talk of Beijing and Taiwan talking about things like blowing up or chopping submarine cables. The paper is not really about that so much. It's it's more so about sort of two things. One, that there's a lot of traditional espionage that, of course, is happening targeted at this infrastructure. And so how do we think about the risks there? And the second piece really focused on resiliency in the network and where new investments in submarine cables are headed. Because you know, submarine cables get damaged quite a bit by natural weather events and ships that don't look and run over a cable. And so there's a question of of just basic infrastructure resilience there. But if you look at the data, there's also a, a pretty big shift in the last couple of years in who's actually investing in submarine cables. And so I'll talk about the U.S. and then China. So in the U.S., traditionally, it's been big telcos, of course, that have owned this infrastructure. Now the biggest investors in these cables are Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. And so that's an interesting trend. It also raises all sorts of questions about, you know, Google runs the dominant search engine and is one of the biggest cloud providers in the world and now also is investing in a bunch of physical infrastructure. But in China, we've also seen a real uptick in the last three or four years in state telecommunications providers investing in submarine cables, and not just connected to China, but around the world. And so you get into a whole host of questions about, you know, these cables cost hundreds of millions of dollars and years to build. And it generally is a very positive and necessary thing that there's a lot of international collaboration and investment in the network. But when you do have things like the Belt and Road and, you know, Chinese efforts to conduct espionage through telecommunications equipment and everything else, there are a bunch of sort of security and espionage questions to be asked about Chinese investment there. So that's sort of the short of the paper. And it just talks about as a result, what are some of the things the US government could, could think about doing on this issue
0: set? Yeah, it was a nice spotlight on a area of national security law. I do some work in this area. It doesn't get much attention. I thought the most interesting thing you said, which I I, I suspect is true, is that Cepheus now has a stream of income that supports very aggressive regulatory initiatives because people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to file for Cepheus approval. And that money is now all going into enforcement. There is nothing like that with respect to Team Telecom. And so Team Telecom probably is relatively starved for resources compared to uh, Cphious. That's an interesting observation. I think that's probably true.
3: yeah, I mean, a- anyone who's who's worked on these issues and out of government knows, right? like it's obviously there's a lot of bureaucracy around these processes, and there could be very protracted these reviews. but that has been yeah, one of the key sort of findings the last few years is as CFIUS has gotten more money, more authorities, et cetera, there's a lot of focus there, not as much on Team Telecom, and you often have the same people staffing both, and so they end up spending, you know,
0: most of their time on on CFIUS stuff. So it's an interesting question. Okay, Nick, the terrorist watch list leaked again, it looks like an airline put it in a unsecured cloud container, just the way everything else leaks, and it... Got a lot of attention. I wondered whether there was really anything
2: new here. We've seen this list before; it leaked a few years ago, right? I believe the leak a few years ago was kind of like not confirmed as genuine. Uh, this one, uh, and this the time airline said yeah. this is real. And one of the key things is is this is widely accessible to journalists, etc., who ask. So they
0: just have to go to Distributed Denial of Service uh, uh, Secrets, which is a, a site that makes it. Easier to search purloined uh, databases. But what, what are they going to find? They're going to find names and phone number uh, and database birth, right? They, 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 this is a relatively modest amount of actual personal data, right?
2: Right. But there's probably very interesting things that could be data mined from it, and it wouldn't surprise me if it might feature in future lawsuits about this stuff. And if anybody has anything interesting that they'd want to data mine out, it, it's just a matter of asking. Yeah. DDoS
0: says they will only let you on if you're a journalist to do searches. So there must be some kind of qualification process. I yes, just don't know so what it is. Yes.
2: So basically... The Distributed Denial of Secrets Collective is a lot of those who actually believed in the WikiLeaks purported mission as opposed to the WikiLeaks mission of helping Russian intelligence and making the Ecuadorian (laughs) embassy staff miserable. And so they tend to segregate data sets into those that do and do not contain PII. And those that contain PII, they go with a request-response model. So, basically, if you are a journalist or a serious researcher, like, I know if I had a legit reason, I could ask for it and get it. Right. Okay, Justin, TikTok is back, and they've got
0: a charm offensive going in Washington, doing a lot of briefings. What's their pitch? Their pitch is, we have been spending years
3: in negotiations with CFIUS. And we have been, A, nearing a final agreement with CFIUS, but B, in the process of these negotiations, we've actually been making changes already to our business, to our corporate management structure, to our technology processes that mitigates U.S. government security concerns. So, um, you know, so to me, there's sort of a couple of parts to this. One is I think TikTok just trying to get the word out about what, they've been doing and what they think should uh, alleviate people's concerns. The second piece is, you know, CFIUS has yet to put pen to paper on this agreement. And so to me, TikTok is definitely trying to put pressure on the government to get that done, on the executive branch, which should be specific, to get that done. Sort of the interesting thing, which I know briefly mentioned before the show, is that in tandem, several members of Congress, at least two Republicans and one Democrat, are saying... I'm not going to accept some kind of mitigation agreement with TikTok. TikTok needs to be banned because of various national security concerns. And so I'll just say TikTok's doing this charm offensive, but there's a lot going on in the background that is not compatible with what CFIUS is trying to do. So, you know, at some point, Biden has to make a decision. White House has been very quiet thus far. But Congress, you know, some members of Congress could potentially come in and say, you know, we want to reinvoke invoke Aiba and, and throw TikTok out of the country, basically.
0: Yep. I suspect there's a fair amount of disagreement inside the administration, and that's part of what's going on here. But the there is some pressure building on TikTok to put forward a, a proposal that will meet the objections, and they're clearly pitching a pretty detailed plan. All right. I got two more stories, and then we will be done, and I'll try to keep them both as updates. One, if you follow this area, you need to be watching the UK online safety bill. It is going to come back and come to Parliament for revision this week, and it is likely to pass. It's certain to pass, in my view, and the pressure is all on making it tougher. A bunch of Conservative MPs have insisted, apparently successfully, that it needs to have criminal penalties for failure to protect children in the way that the bill provides. They're probably going to end up with criminal penalties for willfully ignoring advice from the government, which probably is no big deal. But, you know, criminal penalties for Failure to protect every child in the UK would be a very big deal and pretty scary for the companies. There's also, you know, the ratchet continues to work. 3% of of global revenue was good enough for some of the privacy laws. And then 5%, this is now 10% of a company's global revenue to ensure that they actually do the things that the online safety bill requires, which is going to include things like verifying the age of the people that are online, which is going to be a major challenge. I mean, I am pretty hostile to the haters of face or facial recognition, but I'm just not convinced that face scanning can give you people's ages at something like, you know, one year or two year margin of error. But we'll see. It will turn out to be very hard to do. That will mean people will get turned down and there will be smaller audiences, fewer ads. This is going to turn out to be a pretty big deal. And if it doesn't crash and burn, we're going to see more of this in other countries. So deserves to be watched closely. And... Never bet against the lawyers. This is my other suggestion And the last story. You remember when uh, Madison Square Garden said, we're open for everybody except the law firms that have filed lawsuits against Madison Square Garden, and they used facial recognition from the biopics of all the uh, firms that were suing them to say these people must never be admitted. They're sticking to that, but they are being sued by Law firm after law firm, preliminary injunctions are being granted. Turns out there's a law in New York that says you have to let people into uh, theaters and similar accommodations that was passed deliberately because theaters had been saying, hey, there are some people who are jerks and we just don't want to admit them because they say things that embarrass us. And so when when a law like that is passed that says you can't do that anymore, it kind of makes Madison Square Garden hold the bad end of the stick. The garden is hanging tough. They are actually defying injunctions, at least their security staff is is ignoring injunctions. I just don't see how this ends well for Madison Square Garden. And I'm not usually on the side of the lawyers, but on this one, boy, I just think that Madison Square Garden deserves all the lawyers they're going to get and all the pain to come. That's it. Justin, Gus, Nick, thank you for joining us. This was great. If you're listening to this, still send us feedback, comments, questions, Cyberlaw Podcast at steptoe.com or leave us a review and we'll actually read it on the air, assuming it's moderately entertaining at least. And this has been episode 439 of the Cyber Law Podcast.